very much, Kathy, for that wonderful prayer and praise team again just for blessing us the way that you do each and every week. We're so very grateful. Uh, recently, one of Ellen's Sunday school kids in the second and third grade class asked her a very profound question. She said to her, where is the first Bible? Now, I want you to think about the perception in that question. Think about that. She's looking around her class at the Bibles that she and her friends have, and she obviously recognizes the Bible is a lot older than we are. We have copies. There must be an original Bible somewhere. Where is it? How would you answer that question to a second and third grader? Well, Ellen said, go ask Pastor Brian. (laughs) And I said, go ask Pastor Hank. (laughs) No, no, that's not what happened. But how would you explain to a child that the original Bible does not exist? And if it did exist, we couldn't read it. Because the Old Testament is in Hebrew, and the New Testament is in Greek. The original manuscripts from which our Bible comes have long since disappeared. What we have today are not the originals, but the originals that were translated into English. And then what do we do when our copies of the Bible disagree so there are differences in our Bibles? What do we do about that? Well, I have two more messages to preach in our series on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, The resurrection of Jesus we will save till April 1st when we have Easter. And the second passage is Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, which is the most disputed text in the entire New Testament. And it really leads to uh, this question that I want us to consider this morning and the ramifications of it. Does Mark 16, 9 through 20, belong in the Bible. Now, if you decide yes, you have no problem. You just uh, preach the text like you would any other text in the New Testament. If you decide no, you can just skip it and hope that nobody asks you a question about it. Pastor, you preached on every other text in the Gospel of Mark. Why did you skip this one? Or, You can answer the question, no, you don't believe it's original. And you can use the opportunity to do this, to deal with answers to Bible difficulties. Now that's what I'm going to choose today to do. There are uh, two things that I want to accomplish in this message. Number one, I want to explain why I have doubts about the long ending of the Gospel of Mark. But then secondly, I want to move on to that and talk about why, in spite of the differences that are in our Bibles, I completely, implicitly, and entirely and thoroughly 
trust God's Word. So would you take your Bibles and turn with me over to Mark chapter 16. I'm not going to read the entire long ending starting at verse 9, but I will read some of the verses. And let's just take a moment to pray together, shall we? Father, we believe that we hold in our hands the authoritative, inspired Word of God that is sufficient for our salvation, our walk in this world, and the answer to the ultimate questions of life. But Lord, we know that there are differences in our Bibles. And when we come to those differences and those questions arise, we wonder uh, what's going on with some of these uh, contradictions we might have between the various copies of the Bibles we hold in our hands. And we thank you today that there are good and solid answers and that we believe that God has very clearly preserved His Word and therefore we can trust the Bible. Guide us now as we understand these things. Be our teacher as your spirit. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin with this disputed passage, and let's talk together about a number of reasons why Mark 9, 16, 9 to 20 may not be original, all right? I'm going to go through these five, and then I'll give you a sixth one, um, and then we're going to look together at why we can still trust our Bible in spite of differences like this. Here's the first one. This long ending is not found in the Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Those are both 4th century Greek manuscripts. They are two of the oldest, most complete, and most respected manuscripts of the Greek New Testament that we have. The first one contains all of the entire New Testament, and the second one contains the whole New Testament, except the book of Revelation. By the way, a codex is simply an ancient manuscript in book form, and that's what these two are. And so we have to ask this question, why is it that these two most trusted and complete copies of the Greek New Testament do not contain the long ending of Mark. Secondly, back in the 4th and 5th century, there were two very influential Christian leaders. They were known as two of the church fathers, Eusebius and Jerome. And they said of all the copies of the Greek New Testament available to them, the long ending were not in those copies. And therefore, they did not consider it to be original. Thirdly, when we look at the long ending, what we discover is there is a very abrupt change from Mark 16.8 to verse 9. Look at verse 8 of Mark 16 and notice what it says. Speaking about the women, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. That little word now, uh, at the beginning of verse 9, suggests a smooth transition from verse 8 to verse 9, 
But instead, there is a very abrupt change from the women. Jesus, without even his name being mentioned, is suddenly introduced with a masculine pronoun, he. But when we look back at verse 8, there's only women there that no masculine pronoun he would naturally relate to. And then what's very interesting is in verse 9, Mary Magdalene is introduced with a description. She is called the one from whom he cast out seven demons. And that description suggests to us that she is being introduced for the very first time. But Mary Magdalene has already been mentioned twice, back in chapter 15, verse 47, chapter 16, verse 1. So it's very odd now that this description is added here, as though for the first time we are being introduced to Mary Magdalene. And so it just seems like a very odd transition. Look at number four. There was a marked change in the language and style of the Greek in this long ending. If you read through the Gospel of Mark, you find it is very vivid, very fast-paced. Do you know one of Mark's favorite words is the word immediately? Immediately, immediately, immediately. 36 times we find that word in the Gospel of Mark. But that fast-paced, vivid style is absent here And this is very interesting. One-third of the words in the long ending, they're not used by Mark anywhere else. Or they're used entirely differently than the way that he used them. And then this last one is really sort of a clincher for me. Other ancient manuscripts have a third, different, shorter ending. In fact, if you have the ESV, the English Standard Version, you'll notice right before these verses is this statement in parenthesis, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. There's a footnote here. Let me read the footnote. Some manuscripts end the book with 16 and verse 8. Others include verses 9 through 20 immediately after verse 8. At least one manuscript inserts additional material after verse 14. Some manuscripts include after verse 8 the following, but they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Then these manuscripts continue with verses 9 to 20, And there's at least one manuscript that adds those words at the end of verse 20. And so you say, with all of these various uh, additions to the ending of Mark's gospel, which one is correct? And then let me add one more. One more. There are some strange teachings in this long ending. Look down at verses 17 and 18. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will 
recover. Do you know that Jesus never spoke about tongues in his entire ministry? This is the only place. No other gospel contains any statement of Jesus speaking about tongues. As you know, tongues does not occur until the book of Acts, chapter 2. And then it occurs as a new phenomenon much after Jesus has ascended back to heaven. And then there is no recorded place in the New Testament where believers picked up snakes or drank deadly poison. The only place that comes close is the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 28, where he picks up a large bundle of sticks to put them on a fire, and a snake comes out and bites him, and he does not die. But that was unintentional, not on purpose, as this passage suggests. All of us know that every once in a while we read a news article in the paper, don't we, about the snake handlers, don't we? And how, in order to prove their faith in their church services, they bring out deadly rattlesnakes. And we've all read stories about how some have been bitten and have been killed. And this passage they use to justify that practice, which has led to deaths. So, as we look at all of this, we have to ask ourselves this question, what in the world is going on? And here's what I think is going on. Probably early Christians wanted Mark to end like the other Gospels. If you read carefully, most of the verses in the long ending, they uh, were probably put together from the other appearances in Matthew, Luke, and John. And so while these appearances are true, they are not found here in Mark. And since the odd practices are unverified any other place, they are probably not original. This is probably not the way that Mark ended his gospel. And so we have to ask ourselves this question, what do we do then when we come here? Well, Let me give you a couple of answers. Pastor John MacArthur says this, No doctrines should be formulated based upon these verses. And I believe that is absolutely true. And another Bible teacher who is now with the Lord, William Hendrickson, who taught for many years um, at Calvin Seminary, said this, No sermon, doctrine, or practice should be based solely upon the contents of this long ending. In fact, if I wanted to preach on the resurrection appearances of Christ, I wouldn't preach on them from here. I would go to Luke, Matthew, and John. And so that's sort of my decision, not just to skip it, but to explain to you why I have doubts about this long ending. Now that leads me then to move to the second part of this message. Because in spite of differences like this, 
it is very important for us to understand that there are many, many reasons why we can trust the Bible. And this morning, I want to lead you through some of these so that you will have confidence, not only in your Bible, confidence that I have confidence in my Bible as well, all right? Let's look at the first one. Number one, God's Word was without error when He originally gave it. The reason we believe that is because of Proverbs 30 and verse 5. Turn back there with me, and I want you to notice what is said here. Proverbs 30 and verse 5 tells us that God, when He gave His Word, originally gave it without error, and we at our church believe in the doctrine of inerrancy. Now, notice what this says. Proverbs 35 Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Uh, That uh, little phrase, proves true, was a phrase that was used of goldsmiths. And you know what a goldsmith will do? Uh, They will take the raw ore, they will heat it up in a smelt, and they will skim off all the impurities. And finally, when every impurity is gone and they can look into the liquid and see their face, they know, I have pure gold. All of the impurities have been removed. By the way, how many words of God, according to this verse, are pure without errors in them? How many? Every word of God. The New International Version here says, every word of God is flawless. Flawless. And this is the reason, by the way, that we can trust God. The second half of the verse says, He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Everything that has been revealed is 100% true. Now here's the question that I'm sure you have. Pastor, if we don't have the original copies... And differences do occur, like the long ending of Mark. What do we say then? Well, here's a second reason why we can trust our Bibles. Number two. God has preserved His Word so that no differences affect any major truth. In spite of thousands of years of hand-copying, God has preserved His Word accurately. By the way, doesn't this just make sense, doesn't it? If God went to all the trouble to give us His Word, then certainly He has gone to the trouble to preserve His Word. Let's look together for just a moment at the preservation of the New Testament in order for us to see this. How does it compare to other books? Well, look with me for just a moment, and let's uh, compare uh, the number of manuscripts that we have with some other famous writings, let's say from the Greeks or the Romans. Uh, Homer, Homer, a Greek author, 
wrote in 900 B.C. The earliest manuscript that we have of his works is 400 B.C. 500 years later, we have 643 copies of Homer. Aristotle wrote in 330 B.C. The earliest manuscript of Aristotle, 1,400 years later, in 1100 A.D., only 49 copies. Julius Caesar, he wrote in 50 B.C. The earliest manuscript, almost a thousand years later, and how many do we have? Ten. Now look at the New Testament. Written between 50 to 100 A.D., the earliest copies and fragments of the New Testament, 150 to 180 A.D., 50 to 80 years later, and how many copies do we have of the New Testament? Read it together with me. 24,000. No other book in all of antiquity comes close to the witnesses God has preserved. How accurate is the New Testament? Look at this. The Iliad, written by Homer, has 15,600 lines. Of the lines in that book, 764 are in question so it has a 95% accuracy. Look at uh, this uh, text uh, that is a Hindu text, Mahabharata. It has 124,800 lines, 26,000 lines are in question. That has a 90% accuracy. Now look at this. The New Testament has 20,000 lines, of those lines, only 40 are in question. That's 400 words. The long ending of Mark would be a part of that. Which gives the New Testament, read it with me, what kind of accuracy? 99.5%. Only 0.5% is in doubt and what is in doubt affects no major doctrine. Can I say to you today, God has preserved His Word. God has preserved His Word. Let's take a look at an example so that you can see um, how these differences are really very, very minor, and do not affect any major doctrine. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 2, and I want you to notice a little textual variant in verse 7. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I want you to notice verse 7. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. In my Bible, there's a footnote with the word gentle, and I look down at the bottom, and it says, some manuscripts say infants. Now, do you know what that is in the Greek language? Gentle is epioi. Infants is napioi. It's the difference of one letter. <laughs> 
the letter N, between gentle and infants. Let me ask you this question. Is there any difference between being gentle among you or infants among you? Is there any difference? As uh, Chris Mauser said to me, what's an infant? Gentle, <laughs> right? So the vast number of differences in our Bibles are like this. Where it's so minor, it does not affect the meaning at all. So I want you to think about this. Only 40 lines in 20,000 in question. No major teaching in the Bible is in dispute. God has preserved His Word. Let's look at another one. Another reason why we can trust the Bible is this. Reasonable explanations defend the Bible's accuracy. All right? Um, in other words, when we come along a question and we say, boy, that just doesn't seem to make sense, is there a reasonable explanation for that? Well, turn back with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 2 for just a moment, and I want you to see an error that has led some people to say the Bible is untrustworthy because it has errors. And we have to ask our question, is there a reasonable explanation of why this error exists. Look with me, if you would, at verse 25, and I want you to notice verse 26, all right? Notice what Jesus said. He said to them, talking about the Sabbath and the fact that they were saying to him, you've broken the Sabbath and broken our regulations. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Do you know this is factually incorrect? Uh, it was not Abiathar who was the high priest when David went into the tabernacle and ate the showbread. It was his father, Ahimelech, who was the high priest. So this is factually incorrect. And so people would say, all right, who made the error? Did Jesus make the error? Did Mark make the error? There's one infamous New Testament critic who said this started him believing that there are errors in the Bible. But what I want to ask this morning is this, is there a reasonable explanation for why the wrong high priest is listed here, Abiathar, instead of Ahimelech? And the answer is yes. Let me ask you this question. When did the verse numbers first appear in the Bible? In the 16th century. The very first Bible to have verse numbers was the Geneva Bible, and that was the first time you could say Genesis 15, 17, or Psalm 19 and verse 10. Up until that time, you could not refer to a passage in the Bible by a verse number. So how did people before the 16th century refer to a portion of Scripture? 
Here's what they did. They would refer to a passage by a major event in the passage or by a major person in that passage. I won't ask you to turn there, but Mark 12, 26, Jesus is talking with uh, the Jews, and he says to them, uh, Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? Tell me, which book contains the passage about the burning bush? Exodus, which chapter? Well, you guys are good, right? Chapter 3. Now, you know what we would say? Have you not read in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse about the burning bush? But if you do not have verse notations, you can't do that. So you refer to the passage about the burning bush. Now, that helps us understand what's going on here. Abiathar was the high priest under David. He was far more prominent than his father Ahimelech. And this expression in the time of Abiathar the high priest can be understood to read this way in the passage about Abiathar. What that tells us is it was the normal way to refer to a section of Scripture. Turn with me to one more. Turn to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 39 and 40. I have only recently had some questions about this issue, and so I'm more than happy today to share with you what I think is a very, very clear answer. Listen to what Jesus said as he gave a prophecy about his resurrection. Matthew 12, verses 39 and 40. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus said he's going to be in the grave three days and three nights. Now what's the problem? You cannot get three days and three nights from Friday evening to Sunday morning. All kinds of elaborate theories have been developed to uh, deal with this issue. Some have said, okay, the death of Christ had to happen on Wednesday. There is a Thursday theory. And we say, what's the answer? This expression only occurs in Matthew's Gospel. Let me ask you this question. What's the Jewish Gospel? Matthew. Mark and Luke of the Synoptic Gospels were written to Gentiles. This is a what is known in Matthew as a Hebraism. A Hebraism is a Hebrew idiom or expression that was clearly understood by the Jewish people. We would call it a figure of speech. By the way, do we have uh, American figures of speech? Do we? Of course we do. I, I have a, a, in college, I had a Chinese friend of mine, Kam Sing Ching. 
and he was from Hong Kong. One day he heard somebody say, hit the road. A great big question mark appeared. Why would anybody go out in the middle of the street and hit the pavement? Of course, we know what the figure of speech means. It means get lost. Wait a minute, that's another figure of speech. <laughs> what does it mean? It means leave. Leave. Okay? Now here's what we need to understand. Three days and three nights was a Hebraism. A Hebrew idiom called a Hendiades. A Hendiades is where you put two words or two phrases and link them with and, but you're referring to a single concept. So when Jesus said, I'm going to be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, in the Jewish mind, that was one concept, not two concepts. What Jesus was saying by the figure of speech is, I'm going to rise on the third day. By the way, is there any place in the New Testament where we can see that's what the Jews thought? I didn't see this until this week. Yes. Look back with me at Matthew 27 and notice verses 63 and 64. Look at it. The Jewish leaders come to Pilate. They are afraid that the disciples are going to steal the body. Look what they say. Verse 30, 63. Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the what? Third day. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the third day. They had no problem understanding exactly what Jesus meant. Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day because Jesus said, I will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, referring to one concept, the third day. Would you read a verse of Scripture with me? Read it with me. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Let's read it. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Is there any problem here? Not to Jewish Christians, there's not. And there shouldn't be to us either. Let me close with one more. One more reason why we can trust our Bible. Archaeology proves that the Bible is reliable. 
Now, whenever I'm teaching on a passage of Scripture that is disputed, I love to show discoveries that prove the Bible is true. There are dozens and dozens of them. Let me just show you a couple of of them as we close this message this morning from the Old Testament and the New Testament. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 to 16, God promised David that his house would be the house uh, that would be the king over Israel forever. And we all know that the Bible says Jesus is going to rule and reign on the throne of his father David. Now here's what critics said. There's no reference to King David outside of the Bible. And they said a man of that prominence could not possibly uh, not have some sort of a reference. So the stories about David must be a myth. You ready to what happened? feel like saying, you know, let's all shout, we knew the Bible would do it. Here's what happened. In uh, 1993, this stone inscription was dug up. On it are Aramaic words from an Aramean king, and it's dated to the 9th to 8th centuries B.C., and on that stone is written the house of David. In addition, there are four other kings that are listed in First and Second Kings, and their names appear Joram, Ahab, Ahaz, and Hadad. And so David did become a famous king, and God did establish a royal household of his, just as the Bible said. David was a real figure. We can trust our Bibles. Here's another amazing one. You know what that is? That's Jezebel's signet ring that was dug up in ancient Samaria. And it uh, accords with the passage in 1 Kings that said uh, Jezebel would often document uh, her husband, King Ahab's documents with a seal. And there is her seal. Let me show you one more. If I were to ask you, how many of you know the first convert of the Apostle Paul listed in the New Testament? I can just see somebody saying, Pastor Brian, it's Sergius Paulus. That's the first one on the island of Cyprus, right? Let me show you what was dug up. That is a stone inscription with the name on it, Paulus Sergius, proconsul of Cyprus, the very first convert of the Apostle Paul on his very first missionary journey. Think about this. God has preserved in stone for all time the very first convert of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Now there are dozens of these, dozens of these, showing us how trustworthy the Bible is. Let me give you these words. Nelson Gluck was a wonderful Old Testament student of the Word of God. And I want you to notice what he said. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail Historic statements in the Bible. And all of God's people said, 
Amen. You know what I have in my hand here this morning? The Word of God. What do you have in your hand? The Word of God. And we can trust everything it teaches us on every major doctrine because God not only gave it originally inerrantly, but He has preserved it. And we can trust what He says. This is kind of one of those sermons where when you're done, you kind of go... But it's far better than skipping it, don't you think? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have gone to an amazing amount of trouble that we might hold in our hands accurate, reliable, historical Bibles that we know are giving us the truth in every major doctrine we believe and that we know have been handed down for generations with the author, God Himself, superintending the transmission process right down to 2018. And so thank you. Nothing is more important than having confidence in the Word, which is the basis of our salvation, the basis of our walk with you, the basis of our church, the basis of everything that we do. And we love you this morning that you have indeed given us your truth. Every word of God is flawless, and therefore we can trust you as our shield and as our refuge. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.